Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, and by this time I mean a real welcome back. I hear you've been back in Poland for the first time in pre-COVID? Almost. I was there for five hours in August 2020, but uh, this was the first proper trip. Uh, proper trip. Yep. And how was it to be back? It was nice, yeah. Two-day JLE trip and back to seeing people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was uh, it did its, what it was supposed to do. Right. Did you manage to see anything new this time, or was everything exactly like you left it two years ago? Everything is not exactly as I last saw it two years ago, but I did have time to take in the swimming pool in Auschwitz One, which I hadn't really taken groups to in the past. The swimming pool that the Nazis used to use after yeah. mass extermination. Well, well sort of. For, for a further podcast, but yes, the swimming pool. Okay, so let's get back to the podcast at hand. This is the final installment of the series on American beginnings. You've promised us a long time ready that you're going to give us this episode about the passports. So we're very intrigued and we're waiting to hear. Okay, so let's start in 1832 when a treaty was signed, a commercial treaty between the United States and Russia which guaranteed what you would call reciprocal liberty, meaning that the inhabitants of the two countries would have the freedom, the the liberty in other words, to enter each other's country and reside in, in any part of the country in order to attend to their business affairs. But what does this have to do with the Jews? Well, nothing, at least initially, and then actually everything. Because in 1864, an American Jew called Bernard Bernstein, uh, while on a visit to his parents, who were still in Russia, was imprisoned by the Russian authorities. What was his crime? Well, Jews at the time in Russia were not allowed freedom of travel, They, in fact, weren't allowed to live in most of the Russian Empire, just within the Pale of Settlement, which was about 4% of the entire empire itself. Um, Jews weren't allowed to run most types of business in Russia. Jews, in other words, at the very bottom of the pile. So in the eyes of the Russian authorities, Bernstein was perhaps an American, but he was a Jew inside Russia. And this became the first of a series of incidents, not just in the United States, because in Europe, the same story played itself out. Britain had signed a commercial treaty with Russia in 1859 with similar clauses. No mention was made of any restrictions on British Jews visiting Russia. But three years later, British Jews in Warsaw complained to the British government about discrimination because these people are viewed as being Jewish first and Western Europeans second. 
It was true in Austria. They were also ill-treated by Russia. But here, the Austrians had actually, in their treaty with Russia, had a clause which said that Russian laws that relate to Jews within the empire would be applied to any visiting Austrian Jews. But that was not the case with the other two countries I mentioned. Now, during the 1860s or 1870s, the visits were still pretty occasional. Uh, you know, how much traffic was there from the United States to Russia? But from 1881, the question assumes a far more critical aspect, as we've explained in the last few episodes. And what's ironic is that it's almost reverse engineering. The Jews are saying, you know, I'm an American. And the Russians are saying, no, 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 you're Jewish. And, you know, in Russia, to be a Jew is basically to be, you know, a piece of filth. And Russia argued that Article 1 of the treaty that they'd signed in 1832 stated that this freedom was on condition of the visitors submitting to the laws that were prevailing at the time. So what do you want from me? Those are the laws for Jews in Russia. So who won this battle? Well, this starts an administrative war waged, at least initially, by Russia. The first thing they required all Americans to do when they applied for a visa was to write their religious belief on the form. Christians would get a visa for six months, Jews for three months. And within the passport that they carried, if they were Jewish, that was noted. Even if they said, you know, they're atheists, it didn't make any difference. Um, and whereas, for instance, in France, a, uh, a Christian businessman would pay 150 rubles for a visa, French Jewish businessman would pay 500. And then they upped the ante in 1890 or thereabouts. They refused to give any visas to American Jews. And you now have, for the first time, American Jews. In other words, they are holders of an American passport, but they were originally Russian. And from the Russian perspective, these naturalized Jews were even worse than the American-born ones, because a Russian subject who becomes the citizen of another country is committing an offense against Russian law for which they are liable to arrest on arrival back in Russia. And you find that there was a Jew, naturalized Jew, called Leon Lewison, who was expelled by the police from St. Petersburg on the ground that Jews were not allowed to live there. I don't care what color your current passport is, you're a Russian, a Russian Jew. And the Jews are absolutely outraged the American Jews don't take this lying down. They start putting together a petition. Firstly, Russia has violated the 1832 treaty by limiting the rights of a certain class of Americans. They have also conducted a religious inquisition and insulted the United States by not honoring its passports, which is really attacking a sacred principle in the American Code of Liberties, the freedom of religion. And that was anathema. 
they put together this petition, which they take to politicians. Why do they care so much? How many Jews already were visiting Russia from America? Okay, so it's true that very few of the two million Jews then in America planned to visit at any time. And to the leaders of the Jewish community, Russian discrimination had no personal inconvenience, but it was an insult. And it meant that American Jews in the land of the free were not free. You know, we've left it all behind, the old country and its discrimination and its anti-Semitism, and now it's back to haunt us. But uh, this is the important point. Most importantly, it was an opportunity to force the hand of the hated Russian government. Almost to get back at them at something. Well, more than that, there was a bigger plan afoot here. Given the Russian premise that foreign Jews would not be treated any differently than Russian native Jews, the idea was that if foreign Jews were given privileges like other foreigners, American Jews in Russia would be able to travel around Russia anywhere and carry out business and hire whoever they want locally to help America do business, which meant that the Jews of Russia would suddenly be employed, be given basically rights, at least temporarily, that they would not normally have had. Every Jew in the shtetl could theoretically, not quite, but be employed. In fact, the Russians themselves said it clearly that they could not alter their regulations about American Jews without giving the same concession to Russian Jews. And this is the big play that is now taking place. Who will blink first? You know, will the Russians give in? Did the American government get involved? So for them, very different to today's world. For them, there was what you could call a basic challenge. Could the United States government for humanitarian reasons or any other, intervene or even protest the domestic affairs of other countries. Now, nowadays, the answer is absolutely we right. We do that the whole time. Right, all the time. And that is, you know, what the UN is there for, at least officially, unofficially, it's there to single out Israel as being a terrorist state. Yeah. But there is a forum, whereas back in the early 1900s, there is no League of Nations, there's no organization in which you can discuss the abuses of a particular country. So Roosevelt, this is the earlier Roosevelt, is in a dilemma, and he asks advice from his Secretary of State. The additional fact is that Russia is not the best country to start up with. It's interesting. His Secretary of State, uh, John Hay, was not so bothered by that because the amount of trade they were doing with Russia was not, you know, that significant, given the distances. But the main thing that the Secretary of State said to the president was that you are now, if you protest, you are opening yourself up to have the Russians express their opinion about abuses within the USA notwithstanding the fact that Russian barbarity, especially against the Jews, was legislated, was ongoing, was much more excessive, but you're now giving them uh, a, an excuse, a platform. And to compound the problem, Russia was 
an enemy of Japan. Um, and Japan was allied with Great Britain. So you have to follow this. The Irish Americans, who are probably the largest immigrant group in the United States, they hate Britain. So if they hate Britain, they favor Russia. And therefore, they want America to do business with Russia. And, you know, you've got Russian diplomats uh, fostering this support in Chicago and New York, where you have a lot of Irish. And so you've got two powerful immigrant groups in America pulling in opposite <laughs> direction on the issue of American foreign policy towards Russia. <laughs> so the U.S. ambassador tries to talk to his counterpart but they're not interested. The Russians are just not interested, even on an informal level. And they claim that America has no more right to meddle in this matter than the Russians would have um, to discuss the lynching of Negroes, as they put it. So <laughs> there's a bit of a stalemate here. The pressure on the party and government leaders in the US increases... Um, after the Kishinev pogrom of 1903, where Russian brutality is now brought through the media to the American public. What happened there? It was part of the series of pogroms that really started in 1881, but this became very well known. And it was reported in the press all over the world. Reports were smuggled out and uh, it made it to the free world, and they were horrified, including photos of these pogroms. And at that point, uh, Jews managed to get both Republicans and Democrats to adopt resolutions in their party platform prior to the 1904 election, pledging equal rights to all of its own citizens, and therefore that these passports would have to be honoured because people being killed is a different story. But the Russian ambassador to the United States had a, an interview with the New York Times and blamed the Jews, the Jews in Russia, for the pogroms. He said Jewish moneylenders had made themselves the objects of hostility because they didn't want to assimilate and other Jews likewise and he said that the local authorities couldn't control these outbursts against the Jews. But this didn't work very well. So this political pressure is now in place. And then, somewhat astonishingly, in 1907, the State Department issues a warning to its own citizens that anyone traveling to Russia who goes there without the consent of the Russian government to travel throughout the country, we, the United States, won't defend him if they are arrested unless they get special permission in advance from the government. So this is sort of going back on the promises. And it actually wasn't known for a number of months after the State Department change in policy was issued that this was now the new way forward. And the Jews were outraged. They, they held mass meetings. And the quote from there was that it segregates from the mass of Americans, those of Jewish faith, 
whether naturalized or native-born, and withholds from them one of the privileges of citizenship. And, and to the American, you know, the flag and the, the, the freedom and independence, it's much more resonant than would have been the case in, in Western Europe. And there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of votes in New York alone, which can influence the outcome of an election. So this pressure is now stepped up. In fact, the State Department then watered down the wording of its new policy. And until 1908, it's fair to say that American Jews hoped that diplomatic negotiations by the USA would put an end to discrimination. But it actually gets worse conditions. Life in Russia is on the downward spiral, even though... The American ambassador to the USA uh, called these reports exaggerated and asserted that, you know, most Russian officials were very friendly to the Jews and it would only irritate Russia if you protested. Uh, but that didn't wash. And definitely by 1910, most Jews who were in the know, who were aware of what was going on, wanted the treaty cancelled not just some diplomatic pressure. They actually wanted the whole thing brought to an end. And this was actually the view of most major American newspapers. The State Department surveyed 90 major newspapers, and only four of them were against the treaty being cancelled. And that's the power of the press. And the idea behind it was, you know, it's a violation of the treaty and it's an insult to American citizenship, our self-respect, our self-determination. goes to the heart of what it means to be an American. And now the administration, the government, had very firm views to the contrary, but they couldn't present it because of sort of huge public demand and the charged emotional issues at hand. And by... December 1911, the writing was on the wall, Congress voted by an astonishing margin of 300 to 1 wow. to abrogate the treaty. The Russian foreign minister said he was not to be moved by this. You know, he said that the, the, the Jewish presence in Europe was a constant menace and the exclusion of Jews from Russian society was a matter of national existence. And then in the Senate, I think it was a unanimous vote. There might have been a couple of abstentions, but I don't think anybody voted against it. So um, on December 17th, it was all over. And the United States notified Russia that this treaty signed in 18 1832 has now come to an end, basically because of the Jews. And for them, for the Jews, it was a victory unheard of. Jacob Schiff, who is a multi-millionaire at the time who uh, is very involved in Jewish communal leadership said that this victory was more important than any of the civil rights that have been given to the Jews since Napoleon and you know that Russia got a slap in the face from a great nation so that it wouldn't be incorrect to say that an immigrant minority in the United States uh, took aspects of foreign policy out of the hands of the government. Yeah. What happened in Western Europe with all of this? In a word, nothing. 
Britain refused to request the same treatment for British citizens of the Jewish faith. Even during the pogroms, which I mentioned earlier, of 1881, and in later years, there were no official protests made to Russia by European governments. In fact, Germany and Austria were determined not to do anything as long as there was no danger of mass immigration of Russian Jews out of Russia to Germany and Austria. In Britain, was this because the British Jews, there just weren't enough of them? They didn't push enough or the government was very anti doing any change? Actually, you could probably put it down to economic and political benefits that they wanted to get from the fact that the United States would be less persona grata in the eyes of the Russians and they'll make something out of it. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll chaperine, as they say in the Serbo-Croat. Yeah, I mean, you see this, for instance, most obviously with France. They had a Franco-Russian alliance and they didn't say anything about the Russians because they didn't want to endanger it. Now, it's true the Kishinev program that we mentioned earlier in 1903 did strain relations more so because it got out to the, the public, it got out in, in, in the press. But six years later, 1909, you have the Board of Deputies making a representation to the British government that there is no case that to be uh, held, to be upheld for denying British Jews the same rights in Russia as British non-Jews. But the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in, in Great Britain said there are no legal grounds to ask Russia to treat Jews differently just because they come from a different country. And so they didn't get anywhere in, in Europe, but they did in the United States. So we could say that probably for the first time in history, the Jews actually won. So, yes, Jews got the USA to cancel this 80-year-old treaty over the issue of passport to the Jews, but actually, no, they didn't win because it had no effect on Russia. I mean, it, it couldn't have. It never could have. They won the battle, but they didn't win the war. Russia just continued as before. Um, and, of course, by 1917, it was all over because there was a revolution and, you know, everything changes. The, the three things that do come out of it are, firstly, the power of the press. Uh, that you see clearly in this particular episode. The power of a minority group. And the Jews, for the first time, really do see themselves as free and equal to everybody else in America, which was, you know, a landmark and it's not only a landmark in America, but probably in all of Western society's history. It is something novel and it goes to the heart of, you know, what it is to be a sovereign power of internationalism and to the definition of an individual. There is it their religion, is it their passport? All of this emerges from, from this episode. I find it fascinating. Obviously, today, Jews are all over politics in America. They're very prominent. But even at the turn of the century, they were so involved in politics. I found that so... So that depends on how you define involved in politics. They didn't... There, there didn't tend to be many Jewish politicians as such. 
Uh, they were far more involved in commerce, in education. And there was this large block of votes in places like New York, especially on the level of local politics. Jews came to it very late in the day. And it's understandable because there was a distrust from the old world of any officialdom. Uh, there were potentially language barriers, accents. You know, it was a job. The way uh, Jews saw politics was it was a job for the Gentiles, very much unlike the Irish, who were very involved on a local level. It's true that in terms of voting patterns, so you get the, the, the German Jews became Republicans over time because they were now middle class and conservative, uh, but the overwhelming Jewish vote would be Democrat because they are working class. There is always the exception to the rule, and there's one person who stands out clearly in all of this, a woman who achieved great political breakthrough in a very male-dominated world. Her name was Belle Moskowitz. She was born in 1877, and she was a political influencer, I guess is the term you would use today. In her obituary, the New York Times referred to her as the most powerful woman in United States politics. And the only one. <laughs> uh, no, no, but definitely somebody who made waves. She was the daughter of uh, a watchmaker and a cousin, Isidore and Esther Lindner. And her career began in social reform when she was still quite young, a teenager. Uh, she had a special interest in children, particularly pregnant teenagers. And her first major project was the establishment of the Lakeview Home for Girls on Staten Island, where pregnant teens could receive training to get a job. Uh, she was influenced both by her mother, her mother's style of management, and her father's scholarship. Her father spoke seven languages, served as a chazan, a temporary rabbi, president of the synagogue. And by 1910, she had successfully secured laws that regulated dance hall conditions for the employees, the girls working there, including firstly fire and safety, which was dangerously neglected in the States at the time, and the selling or the banning of the selling of alcoholic drinks. And the New York Times uh, wrote, and the quote is, these laws did more to improve the moral surroundings of young girls than any other single social reform of the time. And then in 1913, after the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, she... Um, Just for the listeners who don't know... Obviously, I do. But. <laughs> right. So without going into it, uh, the American listeners will definitely know this was a, a tragic occurrence on a Shabbos where the factory, a garment factory, was locked. The owners didn't want any of the workers taking time out. A fire started there. And because there were so many pieces of material on the ground, it spread through the entire factory. And literally, people there just jumped out of a window to their deaths because they knew they would be killed. In fact, the forwards that we've mentioned over the past couple of weeks, their entire page was to talk about the Corbonus, all those people that, that perished in, in the fire. And this kick-started legislation. It's very well known from that perspective. And she was one of the people involved in 
promoting the you know the grievances of workers she mediated disputes in the garment uh, districts between the unions and the employers and she also worked privately as an industrial mediator a writer an advisor she was very active it's fascinating how successful she was back in the day when uh, yes was and less it, common by the way this is before the vote women did not right. yet have the vote when she was doing all this what about her personal life? Was she married? Did she have family? She was. She was she, first time she was married was in 1903. She married a, a guy called Charles Israel, and they had four children, three of whom survived into adulthood. He died in 1911. Uh, she met her second husband in 1913, a guy called Henry Moskowitz, who had a PhD in philosophy, but he was a crusader for the working class on the Lower East Side. So this is all that she achieved on a local level. And then her real rise to fame started in 1918 when she worked with a guy called Alfred Smith on his campaign to become the governor of New York. She became his public relations director. Smith was a Catholic, came from an Irish family. He'd left school early on to help his widowed mother. But the Irish political machine nominated him for the Democratic Party candidate as governor of New York. And she had an enormous input into his becoming the governor. And he would be re-elected in 1922, 24, 26. She was one of the first to recognize the potential of public relations, and she developed that. She pioneered the use of film in politics. And politicians, but especially newspaper editors, learned that you come to her first before you go to Smith, but they respected her long-standing rule of never being quoted directly. And she was interested in politics not to advance her own career, but to promote uh, an agenda. She turned down offers of political positions, and that made her more effective as Smith's strategist during his rise to power. Obviously, it left her out in the cold when his fortune declined. And in 1928, Smith became the Democratic Party candidate for President of the United States. And Moskowitz was his campaign manager. In the end, he got 40% of the vote. So the Republicans had 60% and the presidential candidate, as often happens in America, doesn't really recover from this type of setback. Moscovitz hoped that FDR, Roosevelt, the then governor of New York, would hire her as his private secretary. But Roosevelt had a powerful wife to advise him. So she opened a public relations firm and she earned far more there than she had before. But uh, ironically, many of Roosevelt's New Deal policies would be based on programs that Smith and Moscovitz had initiated. And then in 1933... At the age of 55, she fell uh, outside her house and there were complications and she died from it. So here you have a person who is indisputably Jewish, female and Democrat at a time where women were really in the background. And she ignores this male dominated world and eventually becomes too important to ignore. And the interesting thing is that when it was over, she never indulged in printing the revelation book about her time in power. She did her bit. She enjoyed it. She marked many successes politically. And then she moved on. I think, Rabbi Hirsch, you know enough to possibly write a book about her yourself. 
She's a very, very fascinating figure, really. Very interesting figure. Very, thank you very much. That brings our American Beginning series to an end. Do we have a sneak peek on to what we're doing next? Political intrigues. The first one is in Paris in the 19th century. The next one is Ancona in Italy. And the third is London. <laughs> we'll come all the way home. We're looking forward. Thank you very much. And as usual, any questions or feedback or suggestions to be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you. Mm-hmm.